My name is Scott, and I am privileged to be one of the pastors here at Warrington Bible Fellowship. Greetings in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And go ahead and grab your Bibles, if you would, and turn with me to the passage that Pastor Keith read a minute ago. Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Uh, we're going to focus this evening on a part of that passage, verses 8 through 20. So Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 20. You know, I just absolutely love that song that we just sang. What child is this? I, I remember singing this song every year at a Christmas Eve service just like this one. And it has always just struck me. And I love this song because it puts us right in the middle of the Christmas story, doesn't it? I mean, we're right there. It's as if we're looking over the shoulders of Joseph and Mary as angels show up and the wise men and the shepherds and they worship the king. They worship the king. And we feel a little bit of what they feel in that song. And so this is a song that for me has always so vividly expressed the wonder that everybody must have felt, including those angels, because they are eyewitnesses and participants in the greatest event that they have ever known. They are watching God fulfill His promise to save. And you know, even if they only had an inkling of what that was all about, they surely would have had to be filled with awe because at the very least, they knew that God was at work. Amen? So what child is this who's sleeping on Mary's lap? Whom angels show up to, to praise and, and glorify God because of? And they announce His coming to a bunch of shepherds. What's up with that? This, this is Christ the King whom these angels sing about to the shepherds. And so haste to bring Him laud. Let's be eager to give our great God worship because of the babe, the son of Mary. You know, whenever a new life comes into the world, it is cause for celebration and it is cause for wonder. I remember vividly when our boys were born and just how it filled Leslie and me with an incredible sense of awe to hold them in our arms. These little people <laughs> brought us such a great amount of awe. And, I, and I, at that time, I remember wondering, well, who are they going to be? Who in the world are they going to be? What are their personalities going to be? What's going to be their favorite subject in school? Are they going to like to read? Are they going to like asparagus? I think they do. They sure didn't get that from me. You know, what are they going to be when they grow up? We're finding that out now. But I wondered then, you know, are they going to be a firefighter, a police chief? Are they going to be an engineer or an accountant or a garbage man? That's an honorable profession too. What would they be when they grew up? We had no idea. And we had no way of knowing those things. The only thing that we knew for certain was their names and that they were children that God had given us and that every single day of our lives we needed to preach the gospel to them because we knew that someday they were going to need that gospel. They were going to be in need of this baby we're singing about tonight. 
this babe lying in a manger in Bethlehem. And so that's the kind of wonder that, that any of us who've been parents have experienced when a baby is born. We experience this wonder because a baby is a brand new life and we have this very real and proper sense that, that this child comes straight from God because he really does, doesn't he? Because only God can create life out of nothing. But when you think about it, the awe that Joseph and Mary were experiencing and the shepherds as well, what they must have felt as they saw and touched the baby Jesus was very different. And this is an awe that isn't just brought up one time in the Christmas story. We see this wonder three times in the first two chapters of Luke. The first time is when the people are wondering about the baby that Mary's uh, relative Elizabeth bore, even though she was old and barren. Luke 1, verse 66, what then will this child be, they wondered out loud. And of course, that child was John the Baptist. We see this awe and wonder again in, in, in our passage tonight, in the, in the people who heard about this, and also in Mary. The shepherds tell them about what the angels said. And so in verses 18 and 19 of chapter 2, all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And then years later, the boy Jesus, he's 12 years old, he's about to enter into manhood, and he amazes the teachers at the temple with his questions and his answers. And his mother Mary is still full of awe. In verse 51 of chapter 2, and his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. So you know, while we appropriately are filled with awe and wonder every time a new life comes into this world, what Mary and Joseph and the shepherds were experiencing was vastly different. Well, while they had no way to fully comprehend what it all meant, you see, they were beginning to see something very important and very significant. They were beginning to realize that the child in the feeding trough before them was the one whom Scripture had been prophesying about for thousands of years. And how did they realize this? It's because angels showed up and told them. And what the angels told them was exactly the same thing that the Scripture was saying. And so that's why they worshiped. They worshiped because God's messengers told them that this was their Messiah. This was the Messiah that God had spoken of in God's Word. God was fulfilling His promises to them. And so their wonder is not about who this child might be. Their wonder is about who this child is. Their wonder is about who this child is based on what God's Word has told them and based on what the angel has told them. These heavenly messengers straight from God. But you know, that's the challenge that Christmas presents to us, isn't it? Do we believe the angel? Do we believe what Scripture says? Scripture is saying that we need a Savior and that means that we need to be saved. Ever since the Garden of Eden, every single human being is born into sin. Me, you, everyone. God makes no distinction based on how good we think we are. And that's because we have all sinned. Paul tells us this in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
So ever since Adam, our relationship with God has been broken because of our sin. And as Mary and Joseph and the shepherds gather around this baby Jesus, they are gazing down upon the answer to their broken relationship with God, the answer that God has provided. They are gazing upon the face of their salvation. And so as we gaze upon this baby tonight, we've got to decide whether all this stuff is true. What the angels say, what scriptures say, and who this child is. But you know, even secular scholars agree that Jesus really existed. I even read this week an article by an atheist who defended the historicity of Jesus. That is, this atheist was defending the fact that Jesus was a real person, that he lived, that he breathed just like you and me. It's just that the author of this article does not believe that Jesus is the one whom the angel proclaims him to be. And that's the bottom line, isn't it? What child is this? Every human being has got to respond to that question. His very presence demands an answer. What child is this? And if what Luke writes is true, and if Jesus is the Savior that the angel claims Him to be, then what does it mean? And what do we do about it? Well, I think we find our answer in how the shepherds and Mary respond to what the angels tell them about Jesus. How they respond tells us how we should respond to this baby in Bethlehem. And so let's go ahead and dig in a little deeper. Let's take a look at this story in Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. It's soon after Jesus is born, and it's somewhere around Bethlehem. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. But you know, as we look in on these shepherds, we've got to contemplate one of the great themes of the Gospel of Luke, that the coming of Christ turned everything upside down. Theologians call this the great reversal. Here's what that means. The elite or the religiously pious, like all the Jewish leaders, they expected that God favored them because, well, they were religious and pious. And so, of course, God would favor them. That's the way they thought about it. They, they figured they were superior to everybody else, and so God would favor them. And so, generally, they lacked the humility to receive what John the Baptist would later preach, and that is that they needed to repent of their sins to be forgiven of them, and that they needed a Savior. They, in fact, needed the baby who was lying in the trough in Bethlehem. But when that baby Jesus grows up, He doesn't minister to the elite. He doesn't minister to the proud. He ministers to outcasts instead. John the Baptist uh, uh, hears this from Jesus later on in Luke chapter 7. Jesus says, It is the blind and the lame and the lepers, the deaf, the dead, and the poor, all of these wretchedly unclean, unreligious people, they are the ones who have good news preached to them. That's the great reversal. And this is exactly who the shepherds are, by the way. You know, in our modern manger scenes, we kind of romanticize the shepherds. In my own mind, I kind of tend to think of them as, you know, the farmers in our culture, the good old hard-working people who are the backbone of America, you know, with the good family values, all that sort of thing. But the fact is, the, the shepherds were a rough crowd. These are the kind of people that you would avoid if you saw them walking down towards you uh, uh, on the sidewalk. They were generally dishonest. They were unclean according to the standards of the law. That's who the shepherds were. 
And you know, occasionally I've had somebody tell me they're reluctant to come to church and even, even they're reluctant to turn to God because they feel like that they're not good enough, that they need to be clean before they can come to God. Well, if that's you tonight, check this out. God chooses to make the most amazing announcement ever to a bunch of lying, unclean reprobates. And he makes that announcement to them before he makes it to anybody else. In other words, God came to save you, a sinner. He came to save those of us who are painfully aware of the fact that we're sinners, that we are unclean. And so church, shame on us if we ever give the impression that that some people aren't welcome in these pews, that some are not good enough to darken the doors of our church. The church, brothers and sisters, is for sinners. And we've got to never, ever, ever forget that. We are sinners too. I'm wearing a nice suit tonight, but that doesn't cover up what's inside of me, the darkness that is there. That doesn't eliminate all of the things that I have done to sin against the holy God. We put on our nice clothes and we put on a veneer, but we are sinners and we must never, ever forget that. Our fellowship together, you see, is not based on our goodness. It's based on the goodness of our God who has shown mercy on us and He has given us not what we deserve, but what we do not deserve. His love and His grace, His mercy, His salvation. And so by God's love and grace and mercy for the lowly, He sends an angel to shepherds. And He sends the angel to make the greatest announcement ever. In verse 9, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Well, they were filled with fear for three reasons. First, because an angel was appearing before them. That would fill you with fear too because angels are not the precious moment statues we find in the gift shop. They are the powerful creatures of God who live in God's presence all the time. And the second reason the shepherds are frightened is that because angels do live in God's presence all the time, and so therefore God's glory shines around them. This is just like when Moses' face shined when he came down from being in God's presence on Mount Sinai. And so when God sends an angel who lives in God's presence, I, it must be an overwhelming sight. I cannot wait to see them in heaven. Well, the third reason they're frightened is that they're shepherds. They are acutely aware of the fact that they are unclean according to Jewish law. And yet here they are in the presence of one of God's holy angels. And they are probably pretty sure that God's judgment and wrath is about to pour down upon them. But the angel reassures them in Luke 2 verse 10. The angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. The angel is saying, in essence, shepherds, you have no reason to fear, but you have every reason to rejoice because of what I'm about to tell you. This is good news for everybody who will receive it. And here's the good news in verse 11. Listen to this. 
For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. These have got to be some of the most beautiful words ever spoken. Unto you, unto you, an unclean, filthy rag of a person, a Savior is born. Hallelujah. Now it's true that to the Jewish ears of the shepherds, most likely they heard what every other Jew would heard, uh, would hear. Uh, they would hear that, a, that their Savior would be a political one more than anything else, that he would somehow uh, uh, remove the oppression of the Romans, that Israel would become a nation again. It would have been very difficult for them to imagine that the salvation that the angel is announcing would be vastly more significant than that that it would reach into the darkness of their very souls. But it was great news even then because it did mean that God was fulfilling a promise that he had made over and over and over again in Scripture, a promise like this one that he had made 700 years before in the book of Isaiah in chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. And in this you will hear what the angels are saying. For unto us, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of his peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so what child is this? Well, the angels and the prophet Isaiah tell us he is Christ the Lord. He is the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And so just as my my sons are also brothers, and they are grandsons, and cousins, and friends, so is Christ. All of these things, all at once. He's 100% all of those things all of the time. And even more, He is our Redeemer, a friend, our Savior, a judge, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Son of David. He is the Lord, the Master, the Word made flesh, second Adam, the great physician, the Lamb of God, the light of the world, teacher, Emmanuel, which means God with us, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen. And that's the tip of the iceberg. And so as we look upon Christ in this feeding trough, we don't have to wait to call Him those things because the angels already call Him the Christ in the present tense. And the reason we know this is because of one little verb, is. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Quick little lesson in Greek grammar. Verbs in the Greek have a tense, a voice, and a mood. Is, in verse 11, is in the present tense, active voice, indicative mood. Do you feel like you're in English class? So is is in the present tense. It's going on right now from the angel's perspective. Is is in the active voice, and that means that the subject 
of this sentence, who is Christ, He is the one who's acting. He's not being acted upon. No one is making Him Christ. We don't make Him Christ when we believe in Him. He is Christ. He's not becoming Christ. He's not eventually going to be Christ. He is Christ. And finally, and this is the cherry on top, the mood of this verb is indicative which demonstrates a true reality. This baby is Christ. And He has always been Christ. He is our Savior. John 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So what child is this? He is God. He is God, and He is our Savior. It's no wonder the angels rejoice. And so next, the angels tell the shepherds how to find Christ in verse 12. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Don't go to the palace in Jerusalem. Don't look for him in high places among the proud, among those people who think that they're righteous. Because your God, in the words of the letter to the Hebrews, has made himself a little lower than the angels. He has humbled himself, and he has become like us. John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. People like shepherds, liars, and cheats, and thieves, People who have broken the Ten Commandments. People who are full of darkness and sin. God has come to dwell among the likes of us. And verse 14 in John 1 goes on. And we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And this is the glory that the angels sing about next in Luke 2, verses 13 and 14. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. In other words, the angels are saying, Glory to God who lives in the highest heaven and we give Him our highest praise. Because those people that we're looking on who are low and those who receive His grace will receive perfect peace from God. They will receive salvation. They will receive eternal life, eternal fellowship with the living God. Hallelujah. And so then the angels finish their singing and they go on back up to heaven That must have been a sight into itself. But how do the shepherds respond? How do they respond to all this? Well, they respond by believing the angel. No questions asked, not even any doubt. Look in verse 15. Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They don't say, let's go and see if this is true. They know it's true, and they know because they believe God's messenger. They believe 
God. And so they go with haste. That is an eagerness to obey and enjoy the blessing of seeing with their own eyes and they find everything just as the angel had said. In verse 16, they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And so the shepherds are eager to tell everybody what they've seen and heard. In verse 17, when they saw it, the baby, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And now, how do the people respond? With the same awe and wonder that we sang about a few minutes ago. Verse 18, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. And of course, Mary, she goes a little deeper in verse 19. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And there's an example for us, isn't it? Whenever we encounter God, whenever we interact with the living God, whenever we realize what Paul said in Ephesians 3, the breadth and length and height and depth of the gospel and of God's love and truth, whenever we comprehend that, we should treasure it with fear and reverence for the author of that truth. And you know, that's exactly what the shepherds do. Look at the last verse of our passage, verse 20. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. They worship God. And so what child is this? His presence demands an answer. If what Luke is writing is true, and if Jesus is our Savior, just as the angel claims, then what does it mean, and what do we do about it? Well, if this story is true, then it is God who is speaking to you tonight. And there's only one way to respond when God speaks. There's only one way to respond to what God is telling us through these miraculous events, and that's to worship Him just like the shepherds did, just like Mary did. And so we worship him because of what all of this means. What child is this? He is Christ the Lord. That's who he is. It's a fact. He's the one who has come in the flesh and he has saved us. Why did he come in the flesh? So he could live a perfect life and become the perfect sacrifice for our sins, to die on the cross in order to pay in full the debt that we owe God because of our sin. And he also came to rise from the dead, which gives us the certain hope of eternal life with him. So how do we respond? We worship him. We worship him. Not only tonight, but worship him every day of your life. Worship him with your life. Worship Him not only because of these amazing things that did happen, these miracles and the virgin birth and the angels, but also worship Him because of who He is. He is the mighty God who has saved you. He has saved you for all of eternity. And why and how? Because He is Christ the Lord. So I want to invite you to just bow your heads now. And the worship team is going to sing a song for us that I hope is our prayer tonight as we glory in the glory of God and in this amazing thing that He has done for us and for those who receive Him, for those who believe what the angel said and receive Jesus Christ 
is Lord. There is peace forevermore. Peace with the living God forever. So meditate on these things. Meditate on Jesus Christ.